It's Tuesday, May 7th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Mark Reith, and joining me in studio from Million Dollar Portfolio, Mike Olson, and from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. Gentlemen, how's it going? Hey, hey. I'm particularly masculine today. Yes, uh, you are. You, you can hear this voice is quite husky. Yes, I'm sick. The mm. soothing voice of illness. There you go. Uh, <laughs> well, luckily, our first story may help you with that. In case you haven't heard, Merck has agreed to sell its consumer care business to Bayer AG for $14.2 billion. Michael, what's the reasoning behind this? And who comes out further ahead? Merck, which now gets to focus on cancer and diabetes and vaccines, or Bayer, which is now the biggest seller of OTC pharma products in North America. Right. So just just one thing, and I learned this this morning <laughs> as well. It is pronounced Bayer. Uh-huh. And I guess that that just sounds like a little bit more severe or harsh. And so if you really want to like vanquish your pain, headache, or something like that, you just you say that. In any event. How, wait, how do you say Bayer, it? not seller. I, I yeah, said Bayer. Uh, I said Bayer. Uh-huh. Uh, and I guess the, the sort of moral of the story here is Bayer beware. Uh, the nice. seal Ooh. makes sense. Uh, uh-huh. In terms of the – from a, a comparative standpoint, you know, this is like a Ricardian equivalence type of thing. They are both focusing on areas where they have advantages, scale, so on and so forth. Bayer has a significant presence in over-the-counter consumer goods type medical stuff. Uh, Merck has been big in therapeutics, and so it makes a lot of sense for them. Buyers should be able to uh, focus efforts around expanding Merck's, these brands' presence in consumer channels. Merck is not as big in Europe. And certainly, there's an emerging markets growth story here where you're going to see folks using, you know, Lotrimin, Claritin, nasal spray as if and when they become a little bit more affluent. That's not, you know, your allergies, you know, being of ill to you are not such a concern when you have a very low per capita income. That being said, um, you know, it, this this is a hard deal to justify on purchase price unless you assume some pretty some pretty magical things on cost synergies and revenue. Um it looks like the after tax return on capital on this and this is you know it it's about 5 or 6%. So, you know, yeah, these are going to be steady cash cows and everything else, but I find it somewhat difficult to get excited about it. Uh you, you have to see a little bit more. Uh, so, yeah, Merck comes out ahead on this one. Hmm. Okay. Now, I, I don't know too much about the pharma sector, but I was talking to some of the healthcare guys earlier today, and they just rattled off a whole bunch of mergers, mergers and acquisitions going on. We've got this one. Last week, we talked about AstraZeneca and Pfizer, which is now looking a little rocky, but that's a different story. What's an investor to do with all of these these mergers and acquisitions in this one sector? Wh- where, what am I supposed to do when I don't know who's going to own what tomorrow? Yeah, so I, I think I think the interesting part about this, um, and this is one thing that that buyer certainly benefits from, is there's this whole idea of tax inversion, where everybody's leaving the United States to get lower taxes. Uh, what are you to think about this as an investor? Um, not a whole lot on account of the fact that you know now there is sort of this this acquisition related frenzy or, or fervor associated with it fervor uh, yeah good yeah. word and you know i mean a perfect example of this is astrazeneca made like 30 billion dollars worth of market value appear overnight as pfizer made this offer and you know they're saying oh well we we, we really you know uh, you might want to pay a little bit more than that and it's just like 
guys, you should probably know what's good for you and, and cash your chips while they're good. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're both fine companies and everything else, but certainly there is a good bit of enthusiasm around the sector right now. Yeah. I think there's a there's a uh, people to, when when you see this kind of, of these mergers and acquisitions in the space especially I, I think people can tend to want to start investing with you know an acquisition being more or less the crux of the thesis. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me and that's it, we we obviously don't condone that. I mean that's because you don't you don't know who's going to buy what when. Um, and, and you know, like Mikey was saying, I mean, they could just create billions in market value overnight just because that's the offer that they make. So, and bear in mind, the business value has not increased. This was a company exactly. that was it, was it was more or less, you know, it wasn't really expensive. It wasn't cheap at the outset. So, you know, I, I just don't get that. Yeah, you see the big pharma, and, and I mean, they obviously have the financial resources and the wherewithal to make these things work. You know, and on the other side of the coin, you have these these little tiny biotechs where they're all they're basically kind of levered to one really blockbuster drug that's in the middle of you know phase. Two trials that may not make it to phase three or whatever. You know, I, I would just advise anyone out there looking in, in the space. Number one, it, it's obviously uh, a difficult space to understand unless you study it frequently. Um, don't don't make investments based on uh, acquisitions. I mean, don't, don't buy stock in a company thinking that it's going to be acquired at some point because. Uh, that that more than likely isn't going to happen. And you know, I mean, when you look at it at the end of the day, I think just scale really pays here. And I mean, these these big pharma companies are just going to continue to get bigger. Hmm. That doesn't necessarily bode well for shareholders. I mean, it's you know, we're not sitting here calling these guys master capital allocators, right? They're just trying to you know buy up a little bit more here and there to figure out a way to to grow that top line in some way, right. shape, or form. I mean, I, I do think that this you know outside of the tax advantages associated with this, this does sort of pretend or speaks to a broader theme, which is going on in the pharma sector. Uh, these guys, a lot of them had a spectacular run early in the 2000s uh, and late 90s where they put some awesome drugs on the market and now a lot of them are coming off of patent. Hmm. And so there's been something of a shift, I mean, particularly with the advent of Obamacare, uncertain returns uh, or an uncertain regulatory regime where a lot of these companies are thinking of themselves less as research and development organizations and much more as you as sort of they're almost private equity companies hmm. where they um, they provide capital and distribution for these drugs. Um, and so when you see a lot of this deal making, that is sort of endemic of what I think is that shift in the industry dynamic. Interesting. All right. Uh, in other news, shares of Twitter took a hit today after the stock's lockup period expired. Suddenly, 470 million shares, or 82% of the company's equity, is available to sell, and people aren't hesitating to do just that. But I thought this was interesting. Uh, Jack Dorsey, Evan Williams, the Twitter co-founders, they aren't selling. Uh, CEO Dick Costolo isn't selling. Large shareholders like Riz- Rizzi Traverse, I hope <laughs> I said that right, gosh, and uh, <laughs> VC firm Benchmark, they're not selling. Jason, do you like the confidence of some of Twitter's biggest shareholders, or are they just presenting a unified front? Um, I mean, it's it's hard for me to say exactly what they're doing. I mean, I like the fact that they got out there in front of <laughs> Wait, it and said, hey, listen, know. we're not going to sell these because, I mean, right. it, you know, at the end of the day, if, if you're going to have one group of people confident <laughs> in the long-term <laughs> success of that business, I, I want it to be them. Right. Um, and and I, I also, I, it doesn't mean that other insiders aren't selling, right? That's just – they represent a very big block of the shares that are out there. But when you have 
470 million some odd shares or whatever going going onto the open market. I mean, that's just a flood mm. of shares that are being unloaded. And I mean, that that selling is just going to push that price down. So, I mean, it's not a surprise to see the stock down like like this today. I mean, I think that you know the the greater question you have to ask yourself is, does this business strike you as a business that you want to own uh, for the next five to ten years? Do you see Twitter playing a part? Uh, you know, in our future in the next five to ten years, and if so, you know, then you know, assess the business from the fundamental side of it, how they're going to make their money, how profitable they can be. Uh, you know, sell-offs like this. I mean, it happened to Facebook. You know, Facebook I think was down six and a half percent the day there. Uh, one of their big lockups expired, and, and you know, so this just happens, especially with these with these new IPOs. Um, it, at the end of the day, I mean, I think Twitter is in, it's an interesting company. I own I own shares myself. I mean, this definitely. Uh, gets it at the top of my list because I think these these tend to be uh, overreactions. But you know there are a lot of unknowns out there as far as how Twitter is going to monetize. And I mean I think this Amazon cart deal that we've talked about is you know one way that they're looking to figure out the utility of the, of the platform. Well, let's talk about the Amazon cart deal. Uh, this is pretty interesting. So Twitter users and growth, is, like you said, maybe not so great. Uh, we don't know how they're going to be in three to five years. But Twitter's at least making a move to contradict that with hashtag Amazon cart. And I, I just read about this earlier today. I guess you're supposed to use the hashtag to tell the world when you see a tweet that moves you enough to purchase something. For you listeners out there, because you can't see, every time Mark says hashtag, he does the little hashtag <laughs> with his fingers. Hashtag. Yeah, exactly. I should say it like that. Hashtag Amazon cart. Uh, are you guys going to be using hashtag Amazon cart? Well, or is this just uh, something that's going to fall I, on I guess I guess I'm like the, the sort of cynical old man here in the group. Uh, I don't... I don't have. A Ironically Twitter. enough, I'm the oldest guy in the room. <laughs> I, I don't have a Twitter account. I don't have a Facebook account. I should have a Twitter account. I have no desire to have a Facebook account. Um, <laughs> you know, we got a hashtag for guys for guys we, like we, you. Hashtag, hashtag Mike Olson, who's not on Twitter. Hashtag <laughs> boring. At market um, yeah. So. Yeah, I think the interesting part about all of this. Well, the, it's interesting from two perspectives. It's interesting. For Twitter, provided they can go ahead and get people to use this hashtag, which I don't understand why anyone would, but nonetheless, like, why why am I interested to be like, hey, Twitter, in case you want to monetize this ad, <laughs> guess what? That's exactly uh, it. But to the extent they can get meaningful adoption around this, it is it's useful to to Jason's point because they've had a very difficult time providing sort of a concrete linkage hmm. between the ROI of their ads or their, the ROI their ads provide and, you know, I mean, generally speaking, what the utility of the service is. Right. And their, their whole plan here is just like super, super targeted ads. So you have to be thinking about that. In terms of uh, from Am- – I think this is actually possibly very interesting from Amazon's perspective. Um, you know, I'm guessing – there are competitive issues here, or maybe this was tied up in terms of the deal. But I'm wondering if Amazon linking up with Twitter will improve its capacity to measure ROI on ads and actually be an analytics and data provider, sort of a clearinghouse mm. where they're the truth teller for, all right, so you want to do a Google ad, a Facebook ad, a Twitter ad. This is what it's going to be because they understand a lot about consumer behavior, tastes, and preferences. It also reinforces their sort of presence as the the de facto um, or sort of go-to e-commerce player. So you have to like that. Um, right. I think that, I mean, when you look at it, I mean, from Amazon's point of view, I mean, they they get the potential sale. I mean, you know, it's, it's 
you, you reply to the tweet and it'll add the product to your shopping cart. It doesn't mean you buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, it but, you know, from Twitter's perspective, I mean, they're not making any money on this, uh, but what they are getting is is obviously another another flow, another stream of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it will, if it's utilized, it will give them an opportunity to to bring potentially more targeted advertisements to those to those users. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when we look about a, about a year ago, American Express uh, linked up with Twitter right. uh, to do something similar, a little bit different. In that, you know, American Express tweets out deals, and you reply to that. And if your American Express card is linked up to the, to that uh, to your Twitter account, then then you can take advantage of that deal. And so, I mean, an example was they they sent a tweet out to go you could go to this restaurant, and you get twenty dollars off, mm. and you know, just reply to this tweet. And so, the nice thing is there, you reply to the tweet, and then you go to the restaurant, you pay with your American Express card, you get the twenty dollars off on your American Express statement. You never have to present a coupon or even acknowledge to the waiter that you're taking advantage of some deal. And huh. so, you know, that's just an interesting way that works for them. So, I think it works better. Better for for possibly um, some products or some partners uh, than others, but you know, again, I mean, I think this we're in the very the very, very early innings here of just of social media and e-commerce and how this is all going to kind of grow together. And you know, this is a little bit on on both sides, right. and so it's it's not going to make or break either one. Right. But I mean, I think you have to you want to see these kinds of things because you want to see them trying new things, whether right. it's Facebook or Twitter or Amazon or whoever it may be. Uh, you know, this we're going to keep on seeing this kind of stuff happen over the course of the next ten years. So get used to it. Hashtag Amazon Cart. All right, moving right along. Tyson Foods announced earnings on Monday, and the market was not happy. Shares closed <clears throat> down ten percent after the company missed earnings estimates and provided some weak guidance. But it was a bit of a mixed batch this quarter. On the other hand, uh, you had overall sales improved over seven percent this year. Uh, what's your takeaway on Tyson, guys? Yeah, so the main event in this uh, this whole earnings report, and it, this has been sort of a recurring theme for all the protein players, is uh, chicken. Demand spiked on account of, or pricing and demand have spiked on account of the relative cost of pork and beef. Mm-hmm. It, we're going to really dork out on protein here. Basically, so you use about two pounds of grains to produce a given pound of chicken, three to five for a given pound of pork, seven to nine for beef. You should be running this down, folks. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a test. Remember this. So basically, the the net of it is that when you have escalating grains prices, pork and beef get expensive at a much higher rate, mm. and so you've seen a lot of defections. To chicken, uh, there have also been some supply issues uh, with pork and beef, um, and that gets to sort of the second point, which is basically: Are these margins sustainable? Pork and beef prices were both up, I think, twelve and thirteen percent last quarter, um, and I don't really. I think that structurally speaking, you can make an argument for higher long-run chicken margins for mm. the for the reasons we we referenced <clears throat> above. Just because you're going to see higher protein consumption, you're going to see higher grains consumption in emerging markets, which, you know, from a secular standpoint, point to the idea of higher grains prices. So I think you can have higher chicken margins across the long run. I don't know that pork or beef margins are 
for that matter, demand are necessarily sustainable given a long-run view. And, and it's not you know, just because of that grains issue. I think Tyson is probably over-earning relative to their potential. So, mm. you know, I, I'm not really concerned about the outlook and the reason that, sh- that, that shares took a hit for that reason so much as it is whether or not from a long-run standpoint they're earning in accordance with their capability. And I don't think that – I think that they're – that that the stock is expensive on that basis. Hmm. I've got four words for you. Okay. Porcine, epidemic, diarrhea, virus. <laughs> and you're both looking at me like, what the hell did he just say? That's actually, Mike, he was talking about some of the pork supply constraints. Hmm. Uh, that, that is, there is a virus going around that's affecting a lot of, uh, lot of pork stock out there. And that it's is... It's a horrible way to die. It, it, uh, everybody's <laughs> fleeing to chicken, though. And this is important, guys. So, so listen up, because you know, pork is about 25% of Tyson's operating profit, uh, whereas chicken is about 45%. Hmm. But when you see, I, I, I like looking at this because I like seeing how this all sort of spills over into other industries. You know, we talk about places like Chipotle or Buffalo Wild Wings and the price risks uh, that they run. You know, when when their their input costs go up, and so you saw Buffalo Wild Wings try to mitigate that by by introducing a new pricing scheme to their chicken wings, right. pricing by volume as opposed to quantity. Uh, you know, Chipotle is getting ready to run through price increases basically across the board: beef, chicken, pork, everything. Uh, and so for me, I, I I like looking to see sort of how this stuff spills over into other industries uh, because it does. Mm-hmm. You know, it really does, and it forces uh, companies to to you know think about things a little bit differently. And and we know that we're going to see uh, you know some food food cost inflation here over the coming months. And uh, with Whole Foods. Uh, you know, announcing earnings later on today. I'll, I'll be interested to to hear if they have any kind of a take on that on their call. But um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 a very interesting industry when you look at all of the the different inputs and the way that you have to care for that stuff. Like Mikey was saying, I mean, it's different amounts of grains go to you know your different types of protein. Right. Huh, that's fascinating. All right, this is fascinating too. Uh, uh, yesterday was Cinco de Mayo, which is, as we all know, a time for delicious Mexican food. Did you guys cuisine. have any Mexican food last night? You know, yeah, what? I actually you know, didn't. Yeah, we did. We had chicken yeah. tacos. Ooh, hey, price we of chicken did. is. Uh, it's, you, know, you got to watch out for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could have. You could have bought. It could have been beef. <laughs> could have been ooh, even worse. <laughs> could have been beef. Yeah, or it could have been rancid uh, diarrhea pork. Yeah, diarrhea yeah. pork. <laughs> Hashtag diarrhea pork. Um, moving right <laughs> along, Cinco de Mayo. De Mayo. Like Let's focus here. <laughs> uh, was yesterday, bars and restaurants across America suffered throughout the day because of the effects of a lime shortage. Now, uh, for those folks who haven't heard about this, according to the Wall Street Journal, U.S. gets about 97% of its limes from Mexico, but this past winter, heavy rains and a crop disease hit major lime-growing regions south of the border, which sent the price of uh, limes up from uh, a 40-pound box of limes was $40. Now it's nearly 140 Actually, that was the high. I think now it's closer to 120 That means a single lime costs 54 Four cents instead of thirty cents. My God! Well, we're talking about food cost inflation, right? Exactly. Nobody it's really cares about this until Cinco de Mayo, though. right? Well, how were you affected? I was by actually, lime you know, I was in, I was in Mexico uh, right around Christmas, and it was unbelievable because they gave they gave half a lime. No, to nice. me, yeah, they gave half a lime to me my and gosh. when I got when I got my dinner. It's um, extravagant. This is just, I mean. I mean, lime lime pretty much makes everything taste better. I mean, you probably wouldn't think about that, but man, throw a little lime on virtually anything and it's better. Throw a little lime on a margarita or a Corona. (laughs) Think about Cinco de Mayo. So wait, wait. One other thing that is super interesting about this whole story um, is that you know half of the reason is the the weather stuff that you cited, but the other half is actually the drug dealers. (laughs) One of the drug cartels. 
they seized control of a, a bunch of these lime-producing regions mm-hmm. because they were like, well, we can't move a lot of drugs across the border as readily as we used to, so we're going to diversify. Um, <laughs> Cocaine and will get a bag of limes free. Yeah, <laughs> and that made lime supply a little bit uncertain. Um, you know, I think the business lesson in all this as we talk about diversification is to diversify. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you when you think about the lime markets on a broader scale, I think Mexico represents about 15 percent of global lime production. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's significant, but in the broader scheme, you know, in, in all these commodity markets, usually incentives are what drive behavior. And so to the extent there's a shortage of lime supply in Mexico, the other producers will meet that demand. And we might be telling a much different story next year where, you know, Lime prices are, you know, you aren't paying 54 cents a lime, but 10 cents a lime because hmm. everyone floods the market in an attempt at taking advantage of this temporary boom. And this is another one where you can look look well past limes, look at, at virtually anything, any of the companies that we cover. You know, one of the things that we want to know more about is, is any given company's supply chain. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you, you can look through a, a 10K of, of any company to see if, if, you know, they're, you know, dependent, if they're 10% or more dependent on any one given supplier. When you see companies that are very dependent on one or two or just a handful of suppliers, then you know that's a risk because if something happens, whether it be weather or uh, you know, natural disaster, what if drug dealers exactly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that company is going to they're going to be beholden to that to that supply chain's limitations. Absolutely. Right. I mean, what is there going to be? Is there going to be a risk factors in uh, a given ten k, which talks about drug dealers? I, <laughs> I don't think I've ever read that. But I think I, wanna... I, 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 you need to send the SEC an email and see if we can't. Absolutely, let's work that out. Yeah, yeah. The people yeah. need to legit drug cartels. Watch out. All right, maybe that's like the external factors, sort of like the the catch all risk factors. <laughs> right. That's that's a bottom line factor yeah. we, we should all take into consideration. All right. Mike Olson, Jason Moser. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. Thank you. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Foolapalooza paintball captain Dan Boyd. I'm Mark Reith. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> This is it on the answer capitalism. 